Well, I don't know sure if you know, but today is actually Reformation Day. Uh, it's that time of the year when the church, the Protestant church particularly, recognizes the heritage of those who have gone before us and have fought and even bled for the basic scriptural principles that we enjoy today. Even just having the Word of God in your hand and being able to read it in the service this morning is so important. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes up till now, we, we've seen one of the vanities of life is the reality that when I die, nothing I do is going to live after me. My name is going to be lost. Everything I do is lost. So it's really incumbent upon us when there are monumental shifts in the kingdom of God to remember them. And so this morning, I want to look very briefly at the issue of faith alone, or sola fide, as we understand it, having coming down through the life of Martin Luther. In the 16th century, if you went to church, you were a passive observer in everything. You sat there quietly while priests prayed on your behalf. Everything was done in a dead language. You didn't sing. You couldn't read scriptures. You couldn't even pray with the preach. They, they spoke all in Latin. At this time, worship and prayer to Mary was starting to overshadow the reality that Christ is supposed to be the, the only mediator. If you left the church building, and, and I've seen this in South America, they actually have relics, bones or clothing of dead saints. And church theology is that these things speak to you through the example of these godly men or women. So they're venerated, they're worshipped. The Pope himself was considered infallible. He could do virtually no wrong. And likewise, those who are his council of cardinals, who decided on matters of everyday life for the church as a whole, they were also infallible. And the problem was that every person was spiritually and legally accountable bound to them. Your local priests were supposed to be godly men. However, most of them got their position simply because of money. They come from families who you know, the first and second sons would get the, the good jobs and there was nothing left. So a little bit of money and, and you were in. And uh, a lot of them, believe it or not, were not godly men. They had families in secret. They had mistresses. Um, their last thing on their mind was Christ and serving him. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, communion, as it's laid out before us, it was something that you could watch, but you were not allowed to partake. They, they teach what we call transubstantiation, a fancy word that's saying that the, 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 the wine here actually changes magically into the blood of Christ, and the bread changes into the body of Christ. And this is done behind a wall. You could never see this done. Uh, it, the priest would receive Christ, and a, and a bell would be rung, and you would know that Christ was there. More than that, you were never allowed to partake of the elements, just in case, on the off chance, that you would actually defile them. And because it was offered up every week, and they understood this to be the, the actual blood of Christ, the actual body of Christ, they saw it as an ongoing sacrifice for sin. 
We talk about that sacrifice on Christ, of Christ on the cross as a once-off. He died, and from there he purchased us. They recognize, and still do, that this is an ongoing sacrifice. Each and every week, Christ is being crucified on behalf of the church. There was also something called indulgences. These were extra offerings that were offered to people that you could... Uh, if you uh, thought that uh, your loved one's soul was in purgatory, that place where they waited the final eternal determination of where they would go, you could actually pay a price and help them along, buy some grace and, and help them get out of that purgatory. So by the time the 1500s rolled around and, and what we know is, is the Reformation, these indulgences were rampant. They were actually spiritual abuse. They were ways for church members, uh, uh, bishops and, and, and uh, priests, to just line their pockets to do special projects that were theirs. And except for a few radical groups that they would call them here and there, the Catholic Church was the only religious game going. But every aspect of that service, except for the indulgences, was done vicariously. You never partook in any of it. You couldn't understand any of it. In 1517, a young German priest by the name of Martin Luther came to faith by understanding that Jesus Christ died to his sin, for his sin. And he got fed up with indulgences. So he nailed what we know as the 95 Thesis, or 95 complaints against the Catholic Church, to the wooden doors of the church at Wittenberg. His action and his defense of his actions in front of, of all of the cardinals and the pope himself started this great upheaval in the Catholic Church that eventually split off, and all of the Protestant churches that we would know have their lineage coming from that root. But here's the question. It started there, and it, it, it brought to the church these questions. What does it now mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? How is a person made righteous and acceptable before God? What is the role of the church? And where did it get its authority from? Now, Martin Luther was a young, passionate man. He, 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 he desired God. He was a young monk, but he had a problem. He, he didn't have a quietness in his soul that he had a right relationship with God. The very first day that he was to deliver Mass, oh, he was so excited for this day. His family was there, and he said, I'm, I'm going to do this. My family get to see, you know, all these years of preparation. And as he lifts his arms to the sky and says, we offer unto thee the living, true, and eternal God, he stops. Literally, he freezes. He can't finish because he's overwhelmed by being in the presence of a holy God. Now, over the months, this just kept festering at him. How can I be righteous before a holy God? He doubted his spiritual life. And he spent literally whole days going to church, praying and confessing. He fasted six hours a day regularly. He would be in the confessional. You know, the other monks, the friars, the pastors, they got sick of him. They would say, what are you doing here? This is hour four and a half. There can't be anything more to confess. And yet he'd be there. 
He, he refused blankets and basic necessities of life, thinking that he could somehow garnish favor with God by this self-imposed suffering. The more he examined his life, the, the deeper this conviction came that he was a sinner, that, that there's nothing he could do about his sin. And it wasn't simply the idea that he was deliberately making decisions that were contrary to a holy God. He, he was struggling with the whole idea of the sin of omission. The things that we don't know that we're not doing, or we should have done. In fact, one day he said, I've done no wrong. And then he turns around and thinks about it and says, well, maybe I haven't fasted enough. Maybe I haven't prayed enough. Maybe I haven't suffered enough. Maybe I haven't served enough. And that was enough to send his soul into torment. That's when he threw himself into the study of the word of God. Now, to understand that, you, you need to, to, to know that friars, and still today, instead of studying the word of God, primarily they study philosophy. The word of God is secondary. So he throws himself into the word of God, and he reads Romans 1, verse 17. So I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans 1, verse 17 at this moment. So we're going to anchor ourselves this morning just a little bit. Romans 1, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther's problem became a deeply vexed soul. He says, how can I, by faith alone, come unto God? I'm not righteous. There's nothing good inherent in me. Why would God receive me? If God is holy and right, righteous and just in all things, how can he receive a sinner like me? He was so vexed by this verse, he pondered it for days until he saw the connection that we take for granted today. The very justice of God that brings righteousness is what God uses to justify us. Let me say it another way. The justice of God is the very righteousness by which God justifies us through faith. That is, in his own words, he says, at, at that moment, I, I felt like I was reborn and I was entering into the very gates of heaven, into paradise. And here's what Luther finally grasped that had been thrown into the shadows of the Catholic Church for decades and centuries. We're made right with God, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything I can do, and certainly not because of any good in me. There is no good in me. The means of salvation, the way I come to salvation, that it is appropriated, that I receive the blessings of the benefits of Christ's work, is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Simply by trusting that Jesus is fully God, and that his death on the cross paid the penalty for my sin, and in so doing, God passing judgment on him instead of me not only shows his justice, but shows his mercy and upholding his own righteousness. That had been lost for centuries. This may not seem like a very big thing for us today, 
But this went off like a bomb in the Catholic Church in the 16th century. Why? Because the Catholic Church didn't believe that people were saved by faith. The Roman Catholic Church did and still does believe that you can only be declared righteous and acceptable before God if you are yourself holy and righteous. And because no one is righteous, because no one is holy, they set up this whole system that we know of as the sacraments. That by partaking in, in these things, you gain a little bit of grace each time. And that hopefully, once judgment is passed on you, you can go and spend your eternity with Christ. They taught that the righteousness of Christ is actually infused into the wine, into the bread, into prayer, into all of these things. And that by taking it, we are taking a power, a grace of Christ. However, we would understand this rightly to say, no, it is accredited to us. You see the difference? It's something like taking a magic potion and in that there is the grace of Christ and we just have to drink it. We just have to partake in it. We would say no. Christ offered himself on the cross for our sin, and through that, his righteousness is accredited to us. And in fact, another day we'll talk about that whole basis that it is the foundation by which we are justified. You see the problem? Rome said that God only declares someone acceptable to him in his sight if they are completely sanctified in this life. Yeah, no wonder they're trying to always fast-track all of these people and want them to be saints. They did miracles. They did all these things because they want them to see to be perfect in this life. That's the only way to venerate them. Luther said, I can't do anything. There's nothing acceptable in myself. I must trust Jesus and him alone. Now, because of what Luther was teaching at the time. The Catholic Church assembled what we know now as the, the Council of Trent. It basically set Catholic doctrine from then on, including till now. Faith, they say, is only the beginning of salvation. Here's a quote from the Treaty of Trent. The Catholic Church still believes these things. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and predisposed by action of his own will, then let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. If you think it's only by faith, you're cursed. It's got to be something else. So the, the Catholic Church taught that... It, it, to be made right with God, it's not simply receiving Christ by faith and it's his righteousness. They also teach that it is necessary to have the love of God and charity and good works. Now, Luther never denied the importance of love for God. He never denied the importance of good works. But they are the fruit of our salvation and not the basis of our salvation. They're the result of our justification, not the grounds of our justification. Luther says it's by faith alone in Christ. That's the only way a sinner can be justified. And he says, as soon as you come to faith, you're justified. This may seem like a, a small thing to us today. But the reality is, is under that system, there is no freedom of, of our conscience from the guilt of sin, ever. Uh, the Catholic process is, is always this system of guilt, 
of penitence, a treadmill of, of offering uh, uh, things unto the church, uh, unto Christ, and doing these sacraments. It, it's a works righteousness, isn't it? As long as I keep doing these things, I can stay in the grace of God. It, it never releases us from the penalty of sin, from the eternal damnation that is ours. It, 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 there is no assurance of your salvation. Luther would say, as soon as you come to faith in Christ, that righteousness of Christ is yours. You are justified. Your sin is removed. You have an assurance of your salvation. Now, these are things we take for granted today. But again, they went off like a bomb in the 16th century in Europe. He emphasized... Well, and we see this in the book of Romans as well. Well, let me back up. Sorry, I'm, I'm missing something here. So the question is, is it important for us to consider faith alone today? I'm sure some of you are saying, well, that was, you know, 503 years ago. Is it really that important? Yes. The Apostle Paul would tell us and say, yes, first and foremost, it is the gospel. It is the free gift of God to all who believe. Look again at verse 17. And actually, it's back up to verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We need to remember that the whole purpose of the book of Romans was to educate and encourage the early church to live for God. To live for God by faith. And so as we look at, at, at briefly at what Paul is doing through the book of Romans, he emphasizes in verse uh, 24, chapter 3, he says, It is justification by grace alone. It is through faith alone. Verses 25 and 28, chapter 3. It is not received by good works, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It is not through circumcision or any other physical heritage, verses 9 through 12. It is not through the observance of the law. You can't do that, verses 13 through 16, chapter 4. It's by grace and grace alone. He, he even spends time to, to demonstrate that this is the principle that is behind the Old Testament. And, and maybe we're a, a little shaky on this, thinking that those of the Old Testament were saved under the law. No, they were saved by faith, looking forward to the one who would come, the Messiah, who would free them from sin. And so when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, this wonderful capstone, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church would say, you don't have peace with God. It's not by faith, it's by these other things. And you have no assurance in your life that, that this is who you are. Your greatest hope is to continue on with the tithing and with the, uh, the uh, sacraments and hope and pray that uh, when you're in purgatory that you will know the grace of God. Then he takes a, a little bit of time and, and works on this issue of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. What is the gospel there? But the important thing I want to point out is chapter 12, verse 1. After all of this discussion, there is a practical call to holiness, a practical call to live your life for God. He says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, uh, brothers, on the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the importance for us to think about this morning. The call to live for God can only be accomplished if we have a right understanding of what the gospel is, that we are saved by faith alone. To put it another way, the power to live a godly, righteous life can only happen is the, that, that working, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is already at work in us. If we are not made first righteous with God, how can we live for God in any way that would be glorifying and honoring unto him? Any attempt that we would make to live for his glory would be based on my empowerment, my works, my understanding, my deeds. So here's the second reason why faith alone is important. The first one is that it's the gospel. The second one, it is the basis for joyful, godly living. If we're trusting in anything else for our salvation but faith alone, we can't live in a manner that glorifies God. If we've never experienced the power of the gospel to change us first, anything we attempt will be, again, under our own strength and power. And here's the challenge. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, if you're a member of this church. You could be devout. You could be so active in ministries, everyone looks at you and are just amazed. But if you have never been born again of the Spirit of God, if you have never been justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, all of your actions are useless. They have no benefit to you, nor are they ultimately glorifying unto God. We need to be positionally right with God, first and foremost, before we can even live out godliness. If, if we are, at our heart, sinners, then our heart must be changed before we can do anything that would be acceptable unto God. Luther says, it is by faith alone. If our relationship with God is, is based on faith plus anything else, it's wrong. And we have displaced Christ as the sole object of our faith. That's why chapter 1 of, of the book of Romans is so important. It's basically a purpose statement for the rest of the book. It says, the righteousness of God has now been revealed. It is Jesus Christ. And those who follow him shall live by faith. It is faith alone. So is faith alone still important today? Yes. First and foremost, it is the gospel. Secondly, it is the only foundation of a life that is pleasing unto God. Now, even the best of us, I struggle myself. If, if I don't have that gospel message in front of me all the time, I continue to strive under my own strength. I must be empowered on a daily basis. So here are four practical implications for us today in terms of what this means. What is faith alone for us? First of all, it is the foundation for an abounding love in God. 
the Catholic Church that said you, you have to have a love for God before you can be saved. And we would say, no, but our love must be a natural outworking of that salvation, right? If you don't have a love for God, how can you know the gospel? Knowing that we, we came into his presence at one point, and he looked down upon us, and decided to love us in our sin, to receive us as his children, only by the righteousness of Christ. That's the basis for love. To look at his mercy, to look at his grace, and say, what an unworthy sinner. And yet, look at the love of God towards me. I love God because of what he has done. But here's the thing, that loving God will include obeying his commands. Loving God will include trusting him in every situation, every circumstance. Loving God will include desiring and believing only in his word. Loving God will also be thanking him for all of his blessings. And sometimes life will not feel like a blessing. Cancer may not feel like a blessing. And yet, if it comes from our holy Heavenly Father, who knows the beginning and end from all things and is moving it all towards his glory, even these things are for our good. Again, but this is just the overflow, isn't it? The essence of loving God is a revering him and enjoying him, knowing that he has sacrificed his only son on our behalf. So faith makes Christ the sole object of our affections. And out of that, we live for God. Uh, the second implication for us to think about is that faith is the only basis for good works, to be zealous to serve him. A again, like love, it's not a necessary precursor to salvation, but we do know from James that it is a necessary outworking or consequence of our salvation, isn't it? How can we say we know the love of God and yet not be serving, not be desiring to do those things which bring him glory? So becoming desirous to serve God, it's not a way to pay back God for what he's done, and many of us try to do that. It's not a way to try to stay within his good graces because there is nothing there. However, it is out of sheer thankfulness in a recognition of our unworthiness that he has first loved us. And out of that, we want to serve. Out of that, we want to love. Out of that, we do good works. His kingdom priorities then become our priorities for life. We, we give to others as he has given unto us. And we should be eager and growing in eagerness to serve. The more we understand the gift that was given to us, the, the more we understand the depravity that still resides in me, and yet God looks down upon me and says, I see the blood of Christ and not a sinner. We should be humbled and desiring to serve him, to love him. The third implication is that faith alone is a basis for persevering faith. That may sound a little contradictory, but life is not easy, is it? <laughs> we wait for the second coming of Christ until he comes home again, or calls us home. 
when Christ rose from the dead, he not only paid the penalty for our sin, he not only secured the eternal uh, placement that is ours in heaven, but he has fixed what could not be fixed. We saw that in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 15, right? Where, where the preacher says, what is crooked cannot be made crooked. It's impossible. This whole world is under the curse of sin and, and everything is bent on its own passion, on its own glory. And yet we saw how Jesus Christ fixes what could not be fixed. Problem is, we don't see that fixing now, do we? <laughs> we still live in a world that is under evil. And one day we will see that, but how do we persevere until that comes? It's by faith. So one of the elements of saving faith must be a persevering faith. That through the, the vicissitudes and the problems of life, through struggling with sin, I have set my hope on being with Christ. I have set my hope on, on being with him one day, that he has already fixed this, this world Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Again, so saving faith must have this element of persevering faith. It's worked out in us as we yearn for that day for Christ's coming again, as we wrestle with sin, as we wrestle with death. Our faith becomes persevering. It's a wholehearted commitment to him and him alone. Persevering in the work of God to establish his kingdom here in love and in good works. Fourthly, faith alone is the basis for an increase in godliness, for a life that glorifies God. And we've seen that very briefly in the book of Romans, right? This justification by faith alone now, therefore, live out for the glory of God. In all aspects of your life, you are to worship God through your actions, through your being. Because he has saved us by grace through faith, our desire now should be to honor him, to glorify him, to become more like him in all things. So growing in obedience means that we grow in a hunger for God's glory. We grow in hunger for a holiness that is not simply up there, but is being worked out in me in my conscious decisions on a daily basis to do what I know glorifies God and, and not do the things that I know dishonor him. An increased readiness to count the cost in my life to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Growing in, in habits that I know produce godliness reading the word of God, in prayer, in coming together as a family, and worshiping. These things produce godliness, growing in both desire and commitment. We need to do battle with our sin. We cannot grow in holiness on our own. In fact, I heard a, a fellow pastor the other day say it this way, something like this. He said, we do not drift into holiness it's not our default center. We are made righteous by Christ, and by that we are declared holy and acceptable unto him. But we could still live an unholy, ungodly life. The, the reality is we do not drift into holiness. We must make a conscious effort to examine our lives and submit ourselves to the word of God, to the leading of the Spirit. So here are the practical implications, again, of justification by faith alone for us today. 
It is the basis for an abounding love in God, for God, a, a basis for zealous good works, a basis for a persevering uh, here and now. It is the basis for a life of increased godliness. Now, maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't quite sync with one of those. You're saying, well, I don't necessarily feel an increased abounding love for God. I don't feel more passion to serve. I, I don't have an increased godliness. I, I seem to be just kind of stagnant somewhere in, in my life right now. I want to encourage you, you cannot work your way out of this. You need to go back to the cross. You need to understand who you are as a sinner saved by grace. It is by faith alone. As we come to that understanding, God builds us up. He encourages, he empowers us to live for him. It is not I but Christ in me. Our first trip to Lima in 1989. We were downtown, and they have the, the big open square, and the big basilica is on one side. It, it's a wonderful church. If you ever want to get an idea of what 16th century Europe was like, go into an old cathedral or basilica and look at the golden ceilings, and everything is made to draw your attention to God, and yet, remember, you were not able to partake in worship at all. But across the way, downstairs, we took a little trip in a museum called the Museum of the Spanish Inquisition. Sounds innocuous, but if you remember, the Spanish Inquisition was established to deal with the heresy of the Protestant church. Sean and I trek downstairs, and the catacombs are still there, the original tombs or the, the, the holes where they would torture people. And I don't know, our tour guide was probably a young girl in her late teens, early 20s. She loved her job, and she was sharing all of these things about it. And she was, look, that's where they would torture people. You see the chains? And we just looked at each other and think, that was because... They wanted to worship God and have hope in God. They, they wanted a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but the church told them they couldn't. And so these people were taken down and tortured. Now, it doesn't happen today, but there are segments of the Catholic Church that are much more conservative, much more militant than you could ever know here in North America. But the reality is, Faith alone is still important for us today. There are key turns in the kingdom of God in history that we must not forget. When Martin Luther said, how can I come to Christ? How can I have a relationship when I know that I am sinful? He marked and, and set his thesis on the wall. That was a turning point that we can't forget. And for us today, there are implications we need to be men and women who are committed to the gospel, who are committed to living out the implications of the gospel. Not for church, not to remember these people, but to say, it is Christ and Christ alone. And that's who I worship. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are yourself a God with a persevering love a God with an abounding love, a God who commits through covenant, and a God who loves us despite 
the indwelling sin that would so easily entangle us and trip us up. We thank you that you have saved us, but we recognize the task is not done. As long as the church is here, as long as we are here, your worship has not come to full bloom, has not come to its full pronouncement. There are men and women here in Toronto and indeed around the world who need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They need to know whatever system that they come from, it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Their sins can be forgiven and they can have peace with God. We thank you, Lord God, for all of these things and, and so much more. Help us to remember the lessons we've learned from the past and live them out for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.